This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined, as usual, by Mark Galley. Hey, Mark. Hey, arrested Mark Galley. Took a four-day weekend. Added one day to the Labor Day weekend, and I'm feeling really refreshed. Yeah, well, that's what happens if you spend four days in the sunshine, huh? Exactly. All right. Well, who's our guest today? Our guest is Kent Duncan, serves as a lead pastor at Jefferson Assembly of God in Kansas. He has written regularly for Made to Flourish, a pastor's network for the common good, and more to the point today, also for the Center for Faith at Work. His DMIN thesis is on the Blue Collar Challenge, and you'll get a hint as to what this podcast is about by just thinking about that title. Welcome, Kent. Good to have you. It is great to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. What's going on in Kansas? Uh, We are enjoying unusually cool temperatures transitioning from August to fall. We're we're taking it in. We'll take it anytime. Well, it seems like we may be enjoying unusually cool temperatures. My family lives in California, and San Francisco last week recorded its highest temperature ever. Oh, wow. Wow. 107 degrees. Oh, that is amazing. So my family does not live in San Francisco, but they also experienced 107 degree weather, which is kind of unheard of. So I feel like... (laughs) That's hard to pull it off in San Francisco because it's on a peninsula surrounded by water. Yeah, can you imagine? Exactly. That's why they said the highest one ever. So yeah. That's unbelievable. There's some weirdness going on out there, everybody. All right. Well, let's kind of talk about what's been going on this past week, which is Labor Day. So earlier this week... The United States observed Labor Day, a holiday proposed back in the 1880s by some of the country's strongest unions. The holiday began during a time when labor was increasingly asserting its rights. Starting in the late 19th century and over the next few decades, thousands of strikes took place across the U.S., often violent events that ultimately cost hundreds of protesters their lives. Labor Day itself, however, often featured city parades meant to recognize the strength and esprit de corps of the trade and labor organizations, as well as speeches and entertainment for work and their families. In the beginning of the 20th century, churches themselves often organized alongside labor. The following passage is from a Christian history piece that we published on the history of this relationship a couple years ago. So I'm reading from that. Some labor unions gathered members in their halls and marched together to church to hear the special messages. Newspapers reprinted the sermons the next day and ministers were invited to address workers at their shops. These events brought together people who did not often mingle. Quote, both sides discovered that each had been misunderstanding the other. Presbyterian minister Charles Stezel wrote, quote, many a preacher in a study preparatory to the service got a new vision of what the labor movement stands for. And many a working man listening to his Labor Day address caught a glimpse of the purpose of the church, which he had never dreamed of. Today, many of us may be more familiar with the day as the last hurrah of summer or perhaps a shopping opportunity. This week on Quick to Listen, beyond this historic relationship between labor and and the church, we thought it'd be helpful to explore the theology of work and the movement that takes this name. Some have suggested that the movement is mostly for white-collar Christians and leaves out the majority of Christian workers. We'll explore this and other questions about what a theology of work might look like in a diverse society. Before we kind of get into all these different topics, I just want to take 
the time to remind everyone that this podcast, Quick to Listen, is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. Thank you very much to all our awesome subscribers. And I just wanted to remind everyone that we actually have a recurring section in our magazine that is devoted to science. Last week, for instance, on our website, we published a piece from a marine biologist who talked about coral and how coral had taught her some lessons about discipleship. And in our most recent September issue, we have a really interesting article that looks at questions. And so it's called The Linguistic Origins of the Question, Why God Asks Questions and Humans Do Too. And as someone who really likes asking questions and who finds it kind of second nature to ask questions, this was a super interesting piece about human beings and God's ability to ask questions kind of sets us apart from mammals in that way. In fact, they mentioned cats and how cats don't really ask questions, <laughs> ask questions in the go. same way. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just have to read this paragraph because it made me laugh. Said, my cat Sitka can tell me he needs food, meow, and command me to get him food, meow, meow, meow. But he cannot ask me what food is, which is true. I have a cat at home and it is the same way. There you go. I was first introduced to this idea by a friend who wrote a whole book on the questions Jesus asks people in the Gospels. We often think of books as the questions I have for God or the questions I have for Jesus, but he constructed a whole book just on Jesus' questions to people he encountered. So That's it is a very so interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's a whole different way of coming at it. And you see that in Scripture from the, at the very beginning, God starts asking questions when he asks Adam, where are you, Adam and Eve, where are you? Clear up through Jesus, who do, who do, who do men say that I am? So it's a regular feature of the Bible that's a very interesting way to look at Scripture through those eyes. Especially for those of us who feel very strongly about the fact that our God is very relational, I think this question part is very intertwined with this That's a good point, yep. Characteristic. Mm -hmm. I am taking a point from our September piece. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not. Okay, anyway, so if you want to read that piece, you can subscribe to CT at orderct.com slash listen orderct.com slash quick to listen. You can figure out the answers to your questions about other questions and you can support the podcast at the same time. All right. Time for us to ask our own questions to Kent right now. So my first question for you, Kent, is what is the theology of work movement and what ideas drive it? That's a big question. <laughs> I see the theology of work movement as a significant part of a larger movement towards whole life discipleship. Uh, I think there's a, a burgeoning effort underway to connect Sunday worship to Monday's workplace, and uh, the theology of work is, is carrying the water on that. It generally seeks to connect Scripture with life in at least three areas, faith, work, and economics. I'm more acquainted with the faith work part of that uh, that equation, but that triad matters, and I think fundamentally it's an effort to actually flesh out the church's conviction that Jesus really is Lord of all, that he's not just Lord of the church as she worships on Sunday, but uh, that everything the church does, and indeed over all the earth, Jesus uh, claims lordship. I think that human beings were made for uh, work and for flourishing is part of that. That work is not a curse, but rather is a fundamentally good gift from God that was part of this, this beautiful creation that he made us as a part of and gave us responsibility over, and that, uh, and that that stewardship responsibility we have over the earth and our work as a part of that uh, still bears significance today, that all of that matters to God, that uh, not just showing up on Sunday, singing hymns, uh, you know, declaring truth, uh, offering prayers, but that what we do uh, Monday through Friday or whatever our work shift entails uh, all matters to God and that his uh, 
his redemptive purposes, his his gracious reign uh, can and ought to show up in and through the lives of believers in the most practical ways, even when we're we're uh, working nine to five or whatever our particular task is. Many people think of this as a new movement, a new idea, but my recollection is that Martin Luther was talking about this back in the 16th century, uh, that w- our work can be our calling. What's your relationship between Luther's ideas and this new movement? I'm probably a poor source for commentary on Luther only because so many others know so much more about his writing and work on that. But I see the Faith at Work movement uh, really as a continuation of those early Protestant ideas, you know, a conviction that, that sort of spreads the, the participation with God in the world and the glory of God beyond just the priesthood. I think there are some some expanded ideas about work and about Again, its connection to human flourishing, its connection to stewardship of all the earth that probably expand on what Martin Luther initiated, but I don't see a disconnect. I see it uh, as very much in keeping with that and and really as a renewal and expansion of it. Mark and I kind of keep talking about this movement, and I think when we are saying that, we're talking about conferences that we've seen over the years, books, articles— I mean, lectures. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier this week was Labor Day. And so I kind of went through some of our archives about work and re-promoted them. So, yeah, that, that refers to even different things that we've published as well. You know, it, as a part of this movement, all movements have an audience and a group of people that they're trying to speak directly to. Who would you say is this assumed audience of this movement? This is where I have my little bone to pick, probably with the Faith at Work movement, uh, lovingly. I think the presumed audience has been fairly well limited to business owners, entrepreneurs, maybe to some degree upper-level management, executive-level jobs, people who have some level of autonomy in their work. Uh, Maybe another way to say is people who have often intentionally chosen a particular field or career path. And so I remember reading a a quote in David Miller's work, God at Work, where he was talking about the current current atmosphere that has has led to this burgeoning movement. And he talks about how business people want the ability to bring their whole selves to work. And Christian business people and other professionals find common agreement against living this bifurcated life that separates uh, Sunday from Monday. Well, business people, professionals, and so he's very careful to make sure that he that he uses uh, gender-sensitive language there, but he neglects this whole subculture within the working world of of labor, of ordinary labor, of blue-collar workers. So I think that the audience, by and large, has been business owners and entrepreneurs. I think there's great interest in expanding our understanding to stretch to other other expressions of work, but most of what is is uh, written so far, I think, assumes that a person has the kind of autonomy to bring his personal values and visions to bear in the workplace, as opposed to uh, the person who who punches the clock and does what he's told for eight hours or so. Yeah, that seems to be the case when I've attended such conferences and seminars. The word creativity is often used in those conversations, and it just strikes me that, like you're saying, uh, there's only a few jobs in the world in which it allows the independent creativity of the worker to actually be expressed in any sort of way. So it's important for the that group of people, but you're like you're saying, there's a lot of workers who don't fit under that category. Yeah, I think the most recent figure I saw was like 61% of the American workforce can still be categorized as blue-collar workers. So, so so it's a broad spectrum. Uh, however, that figure might have varied uh, depending on who took it or who measured or how recent the, the calculation is. Would you be able to give us your own definitions of white collar and blue collar? Typically, blue collar 
work uh, is characterized by physical labor of some kind, at least physical engagement in the work, an hourly rate of pay, uh, limited educational requirements. Those are the three parameters that I use. I should probably say that I think the, the definition has to be a bit fluid. Even physical labor is not often as physical as it used to be. Uh, automation takes care of a lot of those challenges for the contemporary blue-collar worker. Uh, limited educational requirements uh, is not as simple as it used to be. Some of the work that blue-collar laborers do is highly technical and requires significant training, though the job itself might not still require a college degree. But those three things, physical labor, an hourly rate of pay, limited educational requirements, I think are pretty fundamental at least traditionally so, and then that stands in contrast, uh, you know, to a white-collar uh, job that would be focused on on mental acumen, a salaried compensation structure of some sort, as opposed to an hourly rate of pay and often specific uh, requirements regarding levels of formal education or certification by organizational entities, that sort of thing. Yeah, when we had chatted earlier, I had just kind of asked you if Starbucks or Target would count under blue collar and your definition seems to say yes. Yeah, and for what it's worth, uh, Department of Labor, the U.S. Department of Labor groups uh, blue collar and service occupations together. So the service uh, industry is certainly a part of that as far as as far as the US Department of Labor is concerned and in my mind it is as well. This is these are not typically jobs that require, again, highly specialized training. Um, they're typically hourly employees. Uh, they they are physically engaged with the work. They might not be, you know, bolting a fender on a on an automobile or helping to navigate pouring a, a huge vat of molten steel or anything like that. But uh, you're talking about somebody who's clearing the table, or you're talking about somebody who's rearranging furniture, or a construction worker would be typical like that. But generally, when I when I talk about blue collar workers, when I talk about the value of ordinary labor, I'm talking about people who who often, I think, do, they're not the business owner, they're not the entrepreneur, uh, they they work for someone else, they are an employee, their job is essentially identified for them, uh, scripted for them, they do what they're told as a, as a worker uh, for someone else. Would you say that, that that's a kind of a broad way to define how work is, how work is understood in America, white collar, blue collar, or are there other divisions that we should be thinking about? I think that's a good place to start, especially because this neglect of blue-collar workers seems to exist within the, the literature. But I, I think that it's equally true to keep in mind that there are all sorts of people who offer labor that is voluntary. There are parents who are stay-at-home parents whose, whose work is absolutely significant. Uh, there are retirees who are engaged in ways that aren't traditional in the workforce. So I think there's all sorts of uh, ways to re-examine work and its connection to faith. Uh, and I think we're getting there. I, I think that, uh, again, as, as this has sort of been renewed within uh, white-collar, upper-level management, uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, and now some good attention is being paid to uh, what I call maybe ordinary labor, we're making our way that direction to a more comprehensive appreciation for, for all work, really, as, uh, as valued by God. What I think of when I think of this topic is I also I also remember uh, farm workers in in California where I was raised. They're I suppose technically blue collar by one standard, but it's a it's a seems to me it's a completely different type of work than even factory work or even being an electrician or a plumber or somebody with a skill, which I consider blue collar work. It's a whole different way of thinking about work or what the environment of work is like for us to be talking about as Christians. So I I guess I'd agree with you that there's it's blue collar, white collar, and a lot of other collar and collarless work, maybe. 
<laughs> when we talk about this movement, do you think this is just a blind spot, you know, on behalf of the people who are most involved with this movement or that they just haven't figured out what type of theology that they would use to talk about this type of work? I, I don't think they're, they've been blind to it, at least increasingly there's uh, interest in it. Everybody I talk to about the, the work that I've done, and that's been fairly limited in scale. I'm, I'm really just getting started with understanding this myself, but everybody that I talk to says, oh, we've been waiting for someone to do something about that. Yes, we see this as as, as overlooked, and, and perhaps 10, 15, 20 years ago, that might not have been quite the case, but I think there is a, a real awareness of the need for paying attention to this. Part of the, um, the challenge here is that when you begin at first to think about faith work uh, integration, who, who is it that has more time to think about that? Who is it that's more uh, more likely to ponder uh, sort of abstract concepts about faith and work? It's going to be white-collar folks. It's going to be educators. It's going to be business owners who, who, who reflect more on the purpose and intent of their work. And so who are they going to associate with? Who are they going to converse with? Uh, what are they going to think about when they first think about it? Well, they're going to think about it in their own context. Uh, I think that blue-collar workers often have not given a lot of thought to their vocational choices. I mean, you mentioned uh, some blue-collar workers who are, are transitional and they're moving towards white-collar work. But many blue-collar workers I meet, they graduated high school, a job was open, they took it. They've not, they, they haven't pondered what they want to do with their life in terms of a career, in terms of vocation. They just took a job, and probably the interest of their life is focused on, on other things. And I think that's significant when you talk about faith work connections among blue-collar workers, because instead of entering a workforce, because you have some sense of calling, you've got to often retroactively, you know, you've been working this job 10, 15, 20 years. Now you've got to, based on new understanding, you've got to bring a sense of calling to your workplace, to the work that you've been doing, you know, since you since you graduated high school. I think that's a little different dynamic when you talk about faith work connections in a blue collar context. I sensed a call to ministry very early. I was 12 years old and uh, felt very clearly that God had called me uh, to vocational ministry. So I have never, I've never not had a sense of calling in my work. Uh, but I talk to blue collar workers all the time who do what they do because the job was open, the pay was good. Uh, the retirement package looked okay, and if they just did that for 20 or 25 years, uh, they could they could be done with work and on to other things. But increasingly, folks have begun to think about this in a broader context and begin to address some of the some of the sectors within the labor force that haven't had attention yet. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show. Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
within this type of framework, how important is it that someone feels a sense of calling? Or in other words, is it appropriate to just kind of have an attitude towards your job where you're going into work, you're doing the work well, and then you're coming back and you're investing your time and energy in other communities and other outlets aside from you know, your nine to five? I'd argue that work is highly significant. Uh, I think the Genesis account uh, gives us that insight. One of the things that we overlook, I think, let me put it this way. Uh, I've grown up in a in a church context. Uh, I've been, uh, since a kid in Sunday school, heard all the biblical attributes of God expressed. He's loving, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's sovereign, uh, all these things. I never heard anybody describe God as a worker. But when you read Genesis 1, uh, it becomes clear that God is working, if, if not by if nothing more than chapter 2, where it tells us that he rested from all the work that he was doing. I think he uses the word work there three times in just those couple of verses to emphasize that it was work. And, and then when you consider that we are formed in his image, a reflection of who he is, surely who we are as workers needs to reflect who he is as worker. And I think work is a priority for God. Jesus said, my father is always working. And, and so I think this, this priority of work uh, should not be diminished. And then I think beyond that, that it is difficult to, to do blue-collar work for many people, at least day in and day out throughout the course of a 30, 35, 40-year career, and not give yourself fully to it if you don't have some sense of calling in it. When you look at the Gallup State of the American Workplace report and see that I think the last report I said I read was 68 or maybe 70 percent of the American workforce is disengaged and uh, 16, 18 percent of those actively disengaged, actually working to undo what's being done positively within a company, then you then you have to be aware that that helping people understand a sense of calling and significance to their work, even if it's quite ordinary labor, even if it is labor that uh, maybe culturally or socially is, is somewhat disregarded or disdained or minimized, if we can bring a sense of calling to the lives of workers in that context, then I think it's healthier for them. Uh, I think it's healthier for the economy. It's just healthier in, in, in a hundred ways. Okay, let me press you on that because that's a very good uh, comment that uh, I think needs to be addressed. So let's, an example, my wife uh, is a employment counselor for World Relief locally, and her, jo her job is to help refugees find work. And when refugees come here, the work they have to get is pretty routine, mundane, and boring. Uh, she talks about one really good job in the area is packing Lunchables. That is the, these uh, lunch boxes or little small boxes come down the assembly line, and they put in two pieces of bologna or two pieces of cheese, eight hours a day. How would you address that person in terms of seeing that job as calling and as meaningful? I'm sure I'm sure this is not a surprise question to you. <laughs> it's not a surprise question. It is a great question and I and I and it's not an easy question, uh, but I I do think that uh, a fundamental affirmation that the scriptures make about that is that is that God himself values that work. When you look at, and you have to know this passage is going to come in, but when you look at Colossians chapter 3 and uh, Paul's rules for the household there and where he talks to slaves and challenges them to obey their earthly masters in everything and to, to work at their work with all their heart as working for the Lord, and for not just for human masters, the, 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 the last thing he says there is that since you know you will receive an inheritance 
from the Lord as your reward. So, so Paul writes to believers uh, who are doing work under the most distressing of conditions and the kind of work nobody else wants to do, and uh, the overarching promise he gives to them is that that work actually matters to God, and it will be rewarded as it's done unto him. Uh, I think that's the fundamental conviction that needs to shape even that kind of labor. I think beyond that, uh, you know, this this effort that our work uh, or this this positive result that our work accomplishes in terms of the common good and the good of others. So if my task is to put two pieces of cheese in a tray as it goes down the production line, if I can recognize that ultimately, not only am I benefiting from that and my family benefiting from that because I am actually taking home a paycheck for that, but it recognizes that the people who receive that are benefiting from it, that the economy is advanced by it. Uh, I think those sorts of things are helpful, but I will tell you that for me, the most fundamental thing there has just been this challenge that that even the even the simplest or most disparaged of labor faithfully offered to Christ he honors and and that's been a a strong motivational factor in folks that I've, I've worked with. Okay, it's a little unfair bringing in Scripture, Kent, but I'll let it go this time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate your tolerance for the word. <laughs> no, it is a good word. It is a good a good uh, passage to note. The way theologians talk about it that at the highest level, and this is a theological conversation I'm familiar with but have not actually read deeply in, and a theologian like Karl Barth, rather than thinking of God as a being— the static being who's just there, he says we we are better to think of God as act, uh, meaning God is always acting, always on the move. And that's a more, uh, God is, it might be more better to say he's pure activity. So for the theologians who are listening, uh, what Kant is saying resonates with some of the deepest uh, theology I've read recently. I'm, I'm curious what type of challenge you would have to management in these types of situations as well. What do they need to be offering to the people that they employ? I think there's a responsibility to affirm all labor as valid, uh, necessary, to recognize that uh, that those employees who you lead are are not just um, machines, not just valuable for their for their output or production. Not just resources. Exactly, exactly. I mean, what, what's the phrase? Uh, hired hands. Uh, the, the logic behind that is that all you're really interested in is what those hands can produce, and you don't have any heart at all for the person whom those hands represent. And so uh, recognizing that there's a person there, there's probably a, you know, a family there connected to that individual, there's, there's someone who, like you, is created in the image of God, we say around here, valued by Christ at the cost of his life and worthy of love and service. And so just an acknowledgement that this is not just about production. This is one of the things I think that that God does with, with the Jews when he rescues them from Egypt, is he takes them from being just a means of production and he makes them a people. And uh, and one of the things he does with that is institutes a day off. I mean, can you imagine after all the 400 years of, of enslavement in Egypt, and now the first thing that happens, or one of the first things that happens when they come out and covenant with God at Sinai, is he says, now one of the things you got to do every week is take a day off. One of the things that says to them is, this is not just about what you produce. This is about who you are. And so I think uh, if management can find ways to affirm that in uh, in those they oversee, that's going to be a valuable step forward, both for management and for labor. So when you're saying that type of posture, are you imagining that playing out in terms of policy um, with regards to 
wages, healthcare benefits, opportunities for growth within the company. I am imagining that, and I probably am imagining something even more fundamental than that. And that is just, you know, if I'm if I'm a manager, what's my interaction with the guys on the line? And, and am I always coming to them as an overseer who's cracking the whip, who has to get more production out of them, who has to uh, make sure that uh, that every moment is given to dedication for producing more? Or is there, if, if I'm a manager, is there is there any space in my relationship with them? Just again to acknowledge in conversation, to ask about, to receive input from them on how the job they are doing might be done better, to ask about their family, to check on them personally, those sorts of things that recognize that they are a person with input and value and not just a piece of equipment. Kent, while you were doing research for your thesis, I imagine that you spoke to a number of blue-collar workers, and I'm just curious about some of the findings that you had that surprised you? Yeah, um, I really ended up doing this because I got interested in the faith at work movement uh, and find it compelling. But the congregation I have is almost exclusively blue collar. And so uh, when it came time to, to develop thesis and a project as part of that, this was who I had to work with. And this is, in fact, I've served as pastor of this particular congregation for almost 28 years now. So I've kind of been immersed in this culture, unaware that this was waiting down the road for me to investigate. I, I've found two or three things I'll offer. One is that blue-collar workers really like it when you finally get around to talking about their work. What do you know? Pastor's going to talk about something that matters to me now. And it's not that the other stuff doesn't matter, but uh, they they would... They, they are much more interested in, in hearing about why their work matters and how their work has significance than they are uh, hearing a conversation about transubstantiation. The practical application, straight talk, those sorts of um, characteristics are, are consistent uh, within a blue-collar congregation. And then when you do talk about it and when you do help uh, elevate their understanding that all work matters, all work matters to God, uh, that even if your job is, we, we have a tire plant near here, even if your job is building tires, uh, we have a, a snack factory near here. So even if your job is loading potato chips, boxes of potato chips onto a truck, that if that's done heartily and unto the Lord, uh, God takes note of that and it contributes. You're not just doing that for for a paycheck, but, but, but for something bigger and something greater, and you are serving the Lord your God. But when you begin to talk about that, then they begin to see their work in a different light. Uh, I had a, a fellow, we talked about uh, transitional blue-collar workers. I have a, a young man out of the congregation here, and I've told this story a few places, but he was working at a local printing plant. And about the time we walked through some of this material one time, his job was his job was printing or cutting dog food labels. He'd pick up a large stack of large sheets of dog food labels printed out and move them over to a cutting machine and and, uh, and you know make the adjustments or whatever and cut the dog food labels to fit. Now that's almost as bad as putting slices of cheese on a tray when it goes by. But when we began to talk about how Adam was formed in the image of a God who works and his job was to cultivate and create there in the Garden of Eden, he began to see his own work in a different light. And he, and he said to me one time, he said, I, I said, I get it now. He said, I'm not just cutting dog food labels. When I cut a dog food label, I'm bringing something into being that wasn't there before. I'm, I'm following what it means to be one formed in the image of God. Now, it might be difficult to, to carry that through a 30-year career without some expanded understanding and some break in the monotony there. But, but what I think about that is if, if I've either as an employee or a consumer, I'd rather have the guy 
cutting my dog food labels, excited about the work he's doing and seeing it as an expression of the reign of Christ and the image of God in his life than I would to have him disgruntled about this uh, worthless, monotonous job that he has to do every day. You see that especially in, in some of the skilled labor. I've, I've talked with construction workers. A lot of, work, a lot of their work is backbreaking and somewhat monotonous too, uh, just riveting, you know, uh, riveting bolts in, into a large steel span or whatever. And yet they take great pride, I've noticed some of them, see that bridge over there? I helped build that bridge. Well, he might have built only, you know, he might have only been responsible for one span of that bridge, but now that bridge is used by thousands of people every day. And he takes a certain amount of pride in that, which is understandable and right, only right. Yeah, uh, Jeff Torlina has written a book called Working Class. And uh, I remember reading, it's a, it's a great book about this kind of dichotomy that occurs for blue-collar workers who, as a rule, actually like their work and they like the fact that when the day is done, they've actually produced something. Something results from their day. Their to-do list gets checked off at the end of every day as opposed to what they would see as, you know, never getting anywhere, sitting in an office shuffling papers all day. His argument essentially is that, that uh, it was white-collar workers, it was sociologists who sort of put a value on what work mattered more than others by the categories they created for their various assessments. And of course, if the white-collar worker is going to be laying out the value system, he's going to value, she's going to value the white-collar worker more, white-collar work more highly. But in contrast to the, the kind of dismissal sometimes of blue-collar work by white-collar workers, blue-collar workers really like what they do. They're proud of it. They like it when something's done at the end of the day. It kind of creates a dichotomy for them because often uh, our culture, our society disregards their work or disdains their work to some degree, minimizes their work. And so it's a little bit different um, psychologically, I suppose, to, to navigate life where you love what you do, but the world you live in doesn't pay much attention to it. But all that said, I still remember a quote that uh, a concrete worker, he quoted, who said, you know, if you write a paper or something, he said, I guess that's fine. He said, but if I build a concrete wall, unless somebody knocks it over, it's going to be there for 100 years. That's the kind of value that, uh, that blue-collar workers often see in the production of what they do, that it's going to stand, it's going to stay. They've really done something when the day is over. Thank you so much for this really rich discussion, Kent. It was great hearing your perspective all of this, and we invite all of our listeners to give us their feedback on Twitter and Facebook. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash ctpodcast and on Twitter at ctpodcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and also where they can be found outside of this podcast. Mark? Well, I have a number of things. I, I think I'll mention something from the previous week because it's different. You always make fun of me for saying the same things every week. I have to represent the listeners here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so on my birthday, I was at a conference at Calvin College, and that was the day that my next book, Carl Bard, A Biography for Evangelicals, a two boxes full of it, came to the hotel for me. So it was a nice birthday gift. Grads. So, so pretend our listeners don't know who Karl Barth is. Okay, Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian, probably arguably the be the most the greatest theologian of the 20th century, shaped it more than any other theologian. But there are a lot of great theologians in that century as well, and he's a theologian who evangelicals have traditionally been wary of for various and sundry. Some of them good reasons, but I wrote a biography because his life is in itself interesting. He challenged 19th century liberal theology. He challenged Adolf Hitler in his time. Uh, and wrote some very intriguing and captivating thoughts that I think are well worth our attention. So that was a long-term project. Glad it's 
published now. What was the coolest fact that you learned about him when you were writing this book? Well, I mean, there's lots of very interesting things, uh, little little slices of life that I try to make him into more of a human person. And one of them, he loved Dorothy Sayers' mystery novels. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He despised her Pelagian theology, is what he called it, <laughs> which was a problem he thought with most English theologians, but he loved her mysteries. What's your book called? My book's called Karl Barth, A Biography for Evangelicals. Easy to remember. And where can people get it? I don't know if they can get it yet. It's officially not due to be released till uh, end of September, but it might be available already. I don't know. At least they can pre-order yeah, it, right? Amazon, yeah. Okay. Right. So you can reach me. I failed to mention this last week, and I got <laughs> scolded by someone on Twitter about it, that I've reignited my Facebook page and Twitter page for the occasional comment. Follow at your own risk, people. Yes. Both are Mark Galley. Pretty simple. Yes. And we remember it's G-A-L-L-I. And people can also get your newsletter too, which is... ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report, in which I link to articles that I've found intriguing, interesting, and make comments on them. Awesome. Kent? Uh, mine is uh, simpler and even lovelier, perhaps, than a new book. My wife and I are the proud grandparents to an almost two-year-old granddaughter, and uh, she was in our home over the holiday weekend. She's beginning to develop her vocabulary. I think I'm her favorite, and uh, she's just about perfect in every way she is. And so my great joy is in my granddaughter, Erica. That's awesome. I'm glad that you got to hang out with her for a couple of days. It, it is the best thing that happens to me these days. It is wonderful. Wonderful. I have four and five-year-olds, and it only gets better. We're looking forward to that. We're, we're coaching our children that maybe, uh, you know, Erica needs a brother or sister. Exactly. And, uh, we, of... you know, we'll, we'll see. My, my daughter tells me that when Erica can say, Mommy, Daddy, I would like to have a little baby or bro brother or sister in a full sentence, then they'll think about it. Okay. And so <laughs> we're, we are getting closer to that. So we'll see where that goes. We'll see where that goes. Are you on Twitter or anywhere else online? The simplest way to connect with me is through a rudimentary and uh, sometimes updated website, OrdinaryLabor.com. Uh, I am on Facebook, Kent Duncan, and uh, uh, would be happy to connect in either of those ways. Lovely. All right. So last week, Mark told me that I could not give a precious moment that hadn't happened yet. Whatever, Mark. I'm going to share it now as my precious moment again, because now it has happened and it was as good. And as I said last week, I went to the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, where I had never been before. First of all, it was a really awesome drive. We saw the lake, which first was Lake Michigan, but then later on was Lake Superior for a long time. And I went on this awesome eight-mile hike on Sunday morning, which was very beautiful. It was like a mountain biking course. We didn't mountain bike. We just hiked through it. And then you could see the lake the whole time. And we also stopped in Green Bay and drove over to Lambeau Field, which is cool. It looked newer than I thought it was going to be. Which is a shrine in that town. It is definitely a shrine. Yeah, we were like on Lombardi Way. We took Lombardi Way to get to Lambeau Field. Anyway, so that was kind of cool. Um, and then, of course, my friends getting married was a huge highlight as well. Anyway, people can find more about me off of this podcast at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Well, that's it for this edition of Quick to Listen. Thanks for listening. The podcast is a production of Christianity Today, and you can find our other podcasts by searching Apple Podcasts for Christianity Today. Remember to head to orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe to our magazine. This show is produced by Morgan Lee, Richard Clark, and Cray Alred, and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, make sure to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. That helps us a lot. See you next week.